How's it going out there, everybody? My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in, as always. Sitting next to my co-founder and partner here at Focus Compounding, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing today? Thank you for asking me this episode. <laughs> no, I'm doing really great. Thank you very much. Uh, we want to thank everybody for tuning in, of course. This is a question and answer episode. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we did tweet out to people just a call for questions, and a lot of people tweeted at us. Uh, it's a lot of fun for us. We like to know, obviously, what everybody wants to know about, and it's it's um, it's it's been pretty good. So we want to thank everybody for doing that. Of course, if you want to in the future be ready for our call for questions, be sure to follow us at on Twitter. My Twitter is at Focused Compound and Jeff's is at Jeff Gannon. That's G-E-O-F-F Gannon, G-A-N-N-O-N. And of course, uh, be sure to also uh, check us out at Focus Compounding. Of course, we are the this is our podcast, but we do host a website as well, mm-hmm. which is a, a subscription-based investing content website, sort of how I describe it as. Yeah. And what we do on there is we blog about investing ideas, investing topics. We have an idea exchange where people can write about investing topics themselves, and it's just a growing community of like-minded investors. So it's been a lot of fun, and Jeff and I really have enjoyed connecting with a lot of uh, people that we otherwise probably wouldn't have. So it's uh, it's been really great. But Anyways, for today's episode, like I said, we are going to be doing a Q&A episode. Lots of questions to go over, so we're just going to sort of roll right into them. So the first question comes from Dixon Paul. Uh, we know Dixon. He's uh, all the way out in Hong Kong. Isn't it Hong Kong? Yeah. Yeah, Hong Kong. So I uh, hope it's uh, early. It's probably early morning if he's listening to it, right? Or listening it's to us right now. whatever. Yeah, whatever. So it's probably late at night then, I guess. Okay. But anyways, us uh, all the way here in Dallas, Texas. But his question is, does capital gain tax affect your investing decision in terms of holding periods? Like if there's a capital gain tax at all, will that affect how you invest in any way? Uh, so... It, by the way that I buy and sell things, you would think that it does. Um, I don't sell anything within about a year of buying it, which would seem to be to minimize capital gains. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am willing to sell things if I think I made a mistake. Um, so I'm willing to sell losses within the first year, much more so than sell gains. Um, I don't think it affects uh, that much. Uh, I, I right now have a significant amount of unrealized capital gains, and uh, I am still considering selling a stock to, to buy another one. Um, it is something that I do think about in terms of uh, when comparing the two stocks, the one that's exiting the portfolio and the one coming in. I do think about it after the capital gains tax. But I'm trying to think of a situation where I actually made a different decision. But uh, I was going to say, you probably never not sold a, sold a stock because... I mean, if you think you made a mistake or something because of like some sort of tax, you know, liability or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that uh, I wouldn't sell if there were, if my expected return on something that's in the portfolio was close enough to the expected return for something I wanted to, to replace it with, that the capital gains tax would matter. I don't think I would do that. Um, like, I won't sell a stock unless, usually if I'm selling a stock to replace it with another stock, it's more like I think the stock is going to return 7% a year that I'm selling, and the one I'm putting in is going to return 15% a year. Mm-hmm. In that case, you just take the capital gains tax and it's okay. Sure. It would matter in cases where it's really close, um, but I just have such a preference for holding on to what I already have that I think is independent of the tax issue of it. I just don't like to sell out of something I know well for something I know less well. Unless I think there's a big difference in terms of the returns that I expect. What do you think is your average holding period that you've had from all the stocks you've owned? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's only a few years. So like two, three? Maybe three or something. Yeah. yeah. But um, so that's pretty, I mean, 
That's pretty good, though. I mean, like I said, everyone claims themselves to be or, or holds themselves out to be like a long-term investor, and I feel like probably half of those people aren't. You know, if something like came out tomorrow mm-hmm. and like the stock was dropping down, or, you know, like a, um, in a huge amount, they, a lot of people would probably get scared and sell out. Yeah, I'd say the range are probably from a, the shortest about a year, the longest about seven years, yeah, something like that. Yeah. What stock have you held for seven years? I held George Risk for almost seven years. And that, that's one that you actually sold out recently, correct? Or uh, within the past couple of year, years? Yeah. Or, or, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe 12 months ago or something like that. Yeah, so you're definitely a, a long-term investor. Cool. Yeah, and that one didn't outperform the S&P while I owned it. Did not? Did not, no. Mm-hmm. But the S&P did well, so. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it still did okay. I may have sold out of, I'm thinking if I've sold out of positions that were bad ones, that, that went badly. Um, within a year, I might have. Well, you held Weight Watchers from I did yeah. to like four, and then back but, out. Yeah, but I was thinking about like Barnes and Noble. So maybe I sold Barnes and Noble within a year of buying it. That one, um, I maybe sold for a loss of a couple percent. Mm-hmm. But I felt that things really deteriorated at the company. So really, so that's more likely. Is is like if I see something that's really gone wrong with the company, but the price is sort of the same, then I might sell out. Um, Weight Watchers, I would have sold out if it had stayed at the same price, and that had happened. Yeah, but it declined by so much that I held on because it was just a really low price. Yeah. You know, I. Could and sell out at four dollars sure. or something yeah uh-huh. interesting perfect well we really thank dixon for um asking that question next question comes from dave and his question was how valuable have you found the paying member service level at data providers such as guru focus or morningstar as a tool for initial checks on companies what i mean is when you first get interested in a company is having access to long-term historical financial information or useful tool or a useful tool in getting high, a high-level sense of the business before diving deeper in the 10K. So pretty much, do you find Guru Focus and, and Morningstar and all those services um, you know, as, as useful for, for the investing process? Yeah, some things about them are good. So Guru Focus does a predictability score using stars, um, which is helpful as a screen. Um, so you can find companies that are more predictable than others. That's sort of a proprietary thing that they do. And that you sort you start that, that's one of your favorite screens, isn't it? Predictability. Yeah, yeah, the I know you've told one, me that off, off the podcast before. Yeah. Yeah, and there are ways to do it yourself for the same thing. Um, in terms of the reports and stuff, we never took information off of Guru Focus, Morningstar, anything like that. We always prepared the financials just using Edgar. Um, I think there's some harm in using uh, to do that looking at the past financials in some ways Mm -hmm. but i understand why people would do it to save time and if you don't have a lot of time if you're going to be reading one 10k a week um is it a good idea to look at 20 um summary pages because guru focus has a very long summary if you're a member i think you get access to 30 years and i think Mm -hmm. if if you're not a member you still get some amount um so uh and, and morningstar would be the same sort of way i guess um it it does give you past financials all there together uh, there are some sites that do things like that for free. Um, they're usually their data is less reliable and stuff. I would say mm-hmm. um, generally, uh, I do really like the predictability score on Guru Focus. Um, Why is that? Uh, well, it's a very good list of companies. A lot of them are overpriced at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an example, like Omnicom would show up on there. Cheesecake Factory would show up on there. Those would be ones that'd be very very high predictability. Um, it's basically predictable growth in, in like sales and EBITDA over a long period of time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think those are good companies to know about. Uh, Tandy, which we wrote up on the on the Focus Compounding website, there's a report on it. Um, some some stocks like that are all on there. Um, so that's all useful. It, is it the best way to spend your money? 
I think it saves you time if it helps you decide which 10Ks to look at. Um, it, it's not going to be as useful for like really small stocks. It's going to be more useful if you're looking at stocks that are kind of um, almost S&P 500 type companies, uh-huh. close to it. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and um, you know, do you obviously, so do you use like the, you said before that you don't think the third, did you just say that you don't think the 30 year um, financial reporting or whatever is, is as relevant or? I like it. I think yeah. it's very relevant in terms of, for me, looking at the history. Because but when pr- you, when you come across a stock, you read what the most recent 10K and then like the first 10K or do right. you read all of it? That's yeah. I read the first and last, um, the most recent and then the, the very oldest. Yeah. Um, and then if I really am interested in the stock, I pre- prepare for myself an Excel file mm-hmm. with all of them that I've manually entered in. Do you yeah. think that's better? So you manually yeah. go back at yourself and, and yeah, do I that? Yeah, I think it's much better. Yeah. Because you look into it uh, in the 10K to find the, you start to see the different product lines, the different geographies, the different whatever mm-hmm. else there. Um, you kind of learn about the evolution of the business too, I think, when you do that. Yeah. Which but obviously I, is good. I understand that most people aren't reading a lot of 10Ks. Yeah. So I, it's always better to do it yourself a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways the availability of the information on sites like Guru Focus is somewhat harmful to doing the research yourself. You yeah. start to rely on that. Yeah, we've talked, we've talked a lot about that yeah. as well. How yeah. I almost feel like it almost hinders the... I mean, here's the thing, right? You could read all, you could spend a week or two starting one business and decide not to invest, but that's still such relevant information that you just learned about in the future. Yeah. You know? I mean, you just, I mean, what's, I think investing, you just become good at it just by continuously learning and reading about so many different businesses. And I feel like when people rely on um, things such as like Guru Focus or Morningstar, and of course I fell into that trap myself as well, or myself, um, you know, you sort of, ruin the the learning intellectual process of learning about different businesses and stuff yeah so i think compared to other sites i think guru focus mornings are great i think they save people a lot of time i would recommend both those sites Mm -hmm. uh but what i recommend them compared to doing as much work as possible yourself and trying to come in unbiased without any preconceived notions about the stock and figuring out your own way of how to value it Mm -hmm. yes yeah the thing is they're all have sort of comparable financials that are presented there sure so it tends to make you you're screening sort of quantitatively and you're kind of comparing all companies that way like i just said how i like the predictable um star ratings but if you actually look at what i own my portfolio it's things that i think are predictable but actually don't appear predictable yet i was just going to say that as well i think i mean what my one of my favorite situa- investing situations is where you look at it on a screen or you look at it on Guru Focus and the numbers aren't sort of indicative of what the business is going to be like going forward. Because then I feel like you could find, I guess, un- more unique opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you just rely on screens or Guru Focus or what looks good on on that page when you type in the stock, you know, sometimes that doesn't tell the full story. That's just telling sort of what they've done in the past and not what it's going to be like for the company, you know next year or the year following or five years or 10 years. Mm-hmm. But there are companies like uh, Copart, Waters, um, uh, I mentioned Omnicom, Cheesecake Factory, um, Tandy, but there's also tiny companies like Transcat um, that would show up as predictable mm-hmm. and would help guide you towards certain industries and certain, uh, we wrote about Granger on the, on the, there's a report about Granger and I also wrote a follow-up for it on Focus Compounding. That's a stock that would show up as almost a five-star um, mm-hmm. predictability. It's possible that if you just didn't have the past financials, you might pass on a distributor and not know it was predictable mm-hmm. or something like that. So it does bring you to the right industries. I think for like business analysis, it gives you a really good list of companies that might have wide moats that are worth researching. Mm-hmm. But in terms of 
that you can screen, that you can look at the financials now and get a good idea of what might be cheap. What tends to be cheap is stuff that doesn't, um, it, if it looks predictable already, it's often priced into it. Sure. And so unfortunately, it's often things that for some reason don't look good right now, but actually underneath is a really great business. And that's not something that you find based on past financials. And sometimes seeing past financials can bias you against those ideas so that you sort of pass on them and focus on the really good ones. I see that a lot where it kind of leads to a snap judgment. And so mm. that's my concern with, you know, with that. But there are, you know, I mean, it's possible. I would like everyone to read 10 times more 10Ks than they are now. Sure. And then you wouldn't need to use sites like that. But I know that's not realistic. So I think, you know, it it has its place. And I think it's useful in quickly coming up with good businesses to look for. Mm-hmm. I would be more skeptical of looking for good prices. Interesting. That. Yeah. Perfect. And then the next question, um, actually, I think it came from him as well, is what is your method for assessing management's honesty, operating ability, capital allocation skill, and incentives? That's really hard. Um, so sometimes when they write things and you can read about it, uh, that's easy enough. So and like obviously Berkshire Hathaway. They, Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, and, and I even tweeted out um, about a hostess brand, Dean Metropolis's. He, mm-hmm. um, in their most recent transcript, I actually pulled in a little excerpt for it, and he was talking about their business, and he went on to say, as you also know from my own background, we've made some 80-plus acquisitions. All of them have been the best returns in the consumer sector, and we continue to be committed and focused on making acquisitions for hostess in the future. And then he just went on to talk more about what they do for that, and he was actually he referenced Warren Buffett's letter. He was just saying how they remain very disciplined in their future uh, acquisitions. He says, but as my friend Warren Buffett said in his recent letter, acquisition prices are at all-time highs. And for him, and as well for us, acquisitions just need to be at sensible purchase valuations. So mm-hmm. I mean, so he's just pretty much saying that you know they they came across many different uh, potential acquisitions, but they passed on all 80 of them because the prices just weren't reflective of, you know, a good value. So for me personally, mm-hmm. I think reading a lot about listening to the reading, I read the transcripts, right? right? Listening or reading the transcripts or whatever they write about, I think you could typically get a pretty good feel of their capital allocation and sort of stuff like that. Yeah, I think the transcripts are best for that. Um, I'm thinking of uh, mostly from transcripts. I was thinking of some managers that I liked a lot. Um, uh uh, and um, I had mentioned Activision before. That one was in large part a bet on the management. Uh, I thought that they were the best capital allocators. It's, it was sort of two people. I guess it still is sort of two people. Um, uh, the best capital allocators um, in the video game business. Uh, because my I think some of their competitors didn't worry enough about returns on capital and things like that. Um, and I just got the impression from reading about that management that they were more concerned with that. Um, usually I look mostly on the past, uh, capital allocation decisions. Um, and I don't know how to predict things for the future for a company mm-hmm. uh, that's different from the past. Uh, there are some where I've read the annual letters or something and been impressed. Um, I would say ATN international. It's now called, it used to be, um, Atlantic Telenetwork. Uh, they have, annual letters and even before then I knew a little bit about the um, family there and I'm impressed by their allocation but sometimes we don't have a lot of information about it like we have a report on Hunter Douglas up there Mm -hmm. and I think the family that runs that is really impressive and we have some information about it but it's not a lot Um, like what they did with when they had excess capital they didn't pay it out Mm -hmm. Uh, but they got really good returns on their investment portfolio and there's just a lot of things about that that I think 
you can find from the past record. Uh, the same thing with Luxottica. Um, you don't always know. It's not always that they're communicating to us about what they did, but we're trying to guess based on their past behavior. Sure. And um, it's sort of the thing that matters is capital allocation, I'd say, and um, long-term strategy. Usually I'm looking for someone that's kind of trying to avoid competition and uh, focus more on improving, like building the moat. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that that's basically it. He did talk about incentives in that question. And uh, that that matters more to me. There was, I mentioned Copart one time. Uh, They they did something where the um, top two people at that company basically gave up taking an annual salary for a big options grant that was like maybe five years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gives you some idea of the incentives, but I think incentives more matter further down in the company. So I look at like incentives at the store manager level and things like that. And sometimes you have to research a little harder for that. Uh, the proxy statement has it for management. You can figure out what yeah. the incentives are just from mm-hmm. looking at the proxy. Yeah. But I care more incentives. I definitely care more lower down in the organization. Really? Because what? Because they're more so like the face of, I mean, the other ones pretty much, Running it, I guess you could say, and the at the store level. Sure. And the incentives are just, a CEO tries to do the best that he can, even mm-hmm. when he's not being paid that well for it. Mm-hmm. He's the face of the company. Sure. Uh, he could get fired if he does a bad job. Yeah, very publicly. Uh, no. Very publicly. No. He has to get chewed out on earnings calls if mm-hmm. he doesn't do a good job. I mean, I, CEOs would like you to think that they need to be incentivized with lots of options. Uh, I don't know if that's really true. Uh, but lower in the organization, there are organizations where people are being paid largely from a bonus scheme and stuff, and there are other ones where they're being paid a flat ten dollars an hour at that level. Uh-huh. You know, and it's very different depending on that. And, and we wrote about a couple companies um, where I think the incentives were helpful, and they were really at like the store manager level. Interesting. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you very much, Dave, for those questions. Next question comes from Nate from Oddball Stocks. Uh, follow him on Twitter if you haven't. He puts out some good stuff. Um, it says, why do investors consider low-margin established brand companies as good while high-margin tech or biotech is risky and or bad? That's a very good question. Um, I think it's largely a bias that they have based on just good tends to be you know, why do people think that U.S. treasuries are good? Mm-hmm. There are legitimate reasons why you would think that, yeah. but just because they hear that they're good. Yeah. And they hear that some other things are not good. I was, um, I was going to, do you think, I almost think sometimes investors, they put themselves there. It's almost like they put themselves in a box. Like uh, people that follow like Warren Buffett and Charlie right. Munger, they may say, oh no, I don't want to go into technology because Absolutely. it's too risky and because I don't understand it. It's like, well, actually you probably do understand it. You're just not going to sort of venture off in that because Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger or whatever, they haven't really ventured into that. Although they did say that they wish they would have purchased Google and obviously mm-hmm. they've invested in Apple as well. You know, so, I mean, but do you think, do you think a lot of it is sort of biased because of stuff like that or? Yeah. I mean, I think that like some food companies and, um, and consumer packages companies and stuff like that have, they have low margins, but they have legitimately, um, wide moats often, not necessarily high returns on capital that they're going to have, but they have, they, it, it's not easy to, it, it's not, not just not easy. It's really hard to get your um, toothpaste on the shelf next to Colgate's. Mm-hmm. It, it's incredibly hard. So there are legitimate reasons for that. But it's also hard to start up something to compete with Facebook or Google or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and how different are the economics of Facebook versus um, Capital Cities or something, each of their TV stations. In a lot of ways, Facebook is just a TV station that that covers the world, you know, and has a lot of the economics that Buffett would have liked back then. 
Um, so I think it is people putting themselves in a certain compartment of thinking about that. And I think that especially with, um, some things like Coke and stuff, I think that people, it's a little backwards looking because I don't think that the company now looks like it did when Buffett bought into it. Sure. Um, and, and Buffett might be more interested if he had a much smaller size in, you know, some businesses online and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think they should change with the times and you're sort of lagging behind um, when you uh, invest that way. I, so I, they can be a little dogmatic. Mm-hmm. And the person who asked that question is more of the Ben Graham camp, yeah. I would say. Mm-hmm. Not exclusively, maybe, but more the Ben Graham camp than the Warren Buffett one. And there is sort of the two kinds of value investing that you hear a lot about. I'm not sure why there's such a divide between the the two, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. But that does happen, and sometimes people stick sort of blindly to that. And I would say that that's true for um, following Warren Buffett and looking at things that he did in the 80s, and, and, which was a different world mm-hmm. in some ways for those companies. Some things are similar, but those businesses have changed a lot in 30 years. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And then he, he asks again, or another question says, could you give your thoughts on compounding through long-term investing versus short-term trading? An example, 20% annually over 30 years versus 5% 100 times. What's the best way to turn a small amount of capital into a large amount of capital? Uh, the best way to turn a small amount of capital into a large amount of capital is buying microcaps, illiquid, um, it not trading really fast, but probably holding them one to three years. Mm-hmm. Um, probably about that length, maybe three years on average. Going micro cap just because you think there's there's obviously probably more opportunities or more mispricings, yeah. I guess you could there's say. There's incredible mispricings there. Uh-huh. Um, I always try to encourage people to invest in that area. Um, and there is more on the Ben Graham side of things than the Warren Buffett side of things for people working with small amounts of capital. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't even use the names that way because if Warren Buffett had a million dollars to invest, he wouldn't be investing in, he wouldn't be investing in Apple, for instance. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that buying things that are cheap and selling them within three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Um, now I have said like, if you look, could I have done that kind of thing and outperformed Activision? Mm-hmm. No, but that just, there's a big luck element to that and stuff. You know, do, that's one stock that did that. Do you consider that trading? Cause he asked about trading. Do I consider that trading, buying something and selling in three years? Obviously, probably not. The most of your return comes from it closing the value gap. Mm -hmm. So it depends on how you, I wouldn't use, um, people usually mean trading in a different way, but there's sort of two ways of looking at it. One, do you make money mostly because the underlying business Mm -hmm. is making money or do you make it because there's a gap that's been closed in terms of valuation? So Mm -hmm. when I bought Japanese net nets, that's a valuation gap that closed. The Mm -hmm. returns they had wasn't good. Um, the businesses, uh, when I invested in bank insurance, I made like 40 or 50% in like eight or nine months. So that's a good return it's hard to find something that you could uh, get that same sort of return in. That's because I bought it like two thirds of book value and book value went up 10% during the year. And then the company was bought out at all like 90% of book value, Mm -hmm. put that together and you get a return like that. Finding things like that works best. So, um, obscure, small, uh, really cheap, especially what works best is buying companies that are selling in the public market for less than a private mm-hmm. buyer would pay for them mm-hmm. and then holding it usually, but we usually are talking more like three years and three months. Uh-huh, sure. So, and I think when people are saying trading, they probably mean a little more like three months than three years, uh-huh. but more three years than 30 years. No, you're, it's, it's hard to own stocks for 10, 15, 20 years and get as good returns as if you're really dedicated in like the micro cap area and um, selling within a few years. Interesting. 
And then the last question he asked, which I thought was a really good question. It says, if good is stability, then rent-stabilized HUD housing level to the moon is good. Why is the term good conflated with financial returns when discussing business value? Bad businesses can have good returns, but that isn't a good business. Um, yeah, I think this is a confusion over moat and return on capital. Uh-huh. Okay, so I was listening to a podcast recently where um, someone was trying to sort of define moat, and they said it's having a high return on capital, okay. which it's not. A moat is the thing that allows you to keep earning a high return on capital. So there are businesses that I think are not good businesses in the sense that they don't have a moat. They're not predictable, but they earn high returns on capital just because how the business works. Mm-hmm. There was a company, um, I think it was called Ambassadors International or something like that. Um, the business model allowed them to collect money up front. It's a service business. So the product economics give you almost infinite returns on capital. That doesn't mean there is a moat, right? I wrote up a company, US Lime. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, it's on the uh, Focus Company. Focus Company, yeah. Uh, there are years where its return on capital isn't terrific, but I'd say it has a moat because there aren't a lot of... The, one, there'll be fewer lime producers in th- five years than there are today. And two, you're not going to uh, have a competitor come in near them. So they sort of have a radius in which they have most of the business, mm-hmm. right? And that's not something special to them. That's just how the industry works. I would say that's a good business. Mm-hmm. It's predictable. It's good. You could leverage it up. Um, the same way you would love a job real estate. Uh, does it earn infinite returns on capital and stuff? No. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the difference there? No, I mean, well, it, one part that's pretty interesting to me is like, and I feel like, you know, like a, uh, the same business can be a good investment at one price and completely speculative at another price. And it's like even what could be defined as a bad business could make a, an interesting investment at a certain at a certain price. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, I think that, uh, I'm concerned right now that they're, that people are paying too much for quality uh-huh. right now. Sure. But that's something that changes in and out. I mean, um, if you had asked me seven, eight years ago, I would have said quality is cheap. Uh-huh. And that actually is a good time to In like maybe 2011, 2012, something like that, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that had been good value in the years after the financial crisis, the really cheap stuff, sure. was no longer really cheap. Mm-hmm. And so it's always a, you know, this, value is sort of a factor, mm-hmm. right? In terms of like how um, academics think about it and how funds think about it, mm-hmm. indexes. But value investing is not about just the value as a factor. Mm-hmm. It's about understanding that sometimes those companies that are just trading a little bit of book value are not very good right now. Mm-hmm. And then in other times, they're really being overlooked and they're of pretty high quality. Um, I've, I've said that before with net nets. A lot of people are interested in net net investing. It's great. I've made money doing it. But there are people who will say to me, well, I know this might be a fraud. Yeah. I know this this Chinese stock might be a fraud. Yeah. But it is a net net and there's research saying yeah. that it works. And <laughs> Maybe, but that's betting on a basket of stocks of which many are possibly frauds is not really the same concept as what Ben Graham was doing. It, it, so you, when that's happening, you realize maybe in the U.S. now is not the time to be investing in net nets if you're saying, well, it might be a fraud. It might not be. You have to go someplace else and buy things. Or you have to wait for a moment where those things are cheap. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, yeah, but actually investing in low-quality businesses often gives you better returns, I would say, as mm-hmm. an investor. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because they're more. There just could be more oper- mispricings, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's some high-quality businesses that can be very mispriced. Do you think when, let's say, people that have smaller sums of money, they should ch- kind of look for those, I guess, 
quote-unquote bad businesses for higher returns, do you think? Or do you think it's kind of just whatever, wherever the opportunity is? Yes. I think that often... Yes to what? I think they often should invest in what value investors, yeah, mm-hmm. the Warren Buffett type value investors would call a bad business. But I want to stress the difference between that and a very speculative business. Uh-huh. So a bad business being something that earns a 9% return on equity, that it's not leveraging up, that it's been earning for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is Warren Buffett type investors will say that's a bad business. Sure. But that's something that at the right price, like below book value, yeah. can make a terrific investment. Mm-hmm. But that's very different than... Like when I put out a call for people to send in ideas for me to write up for them, what I didn't get back was like bad businesses, boring, bad businesses. What I got was a lot of speculative businesses. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference. Businesses that aren't turning a profit consistently, things like that. So um, if we mean bad business, the kind of thing Ben Graham would buy, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's some of the highest returns that you can Would you get. rather, do you think you should focus more on price first relative to just buying a good business? Um, I mean, like, what I, do you think is the most important? The gap between what you would appraise it at, uh-huh. so price, and what it, it costs. Uh-huh. But I think that's both elements sure. of it. Yeah. So how certain are you of your appraisal? Mm-hmm. And then how cheap is it? Like, um, I think a lot of people make a mistake in thinking that just like low price to book is a good um, investment. And it may not be. Mm-hmm. Uh I was looking at stock recently that I think is about a 35% discount to um, care to tell everyone what stock I'm not going <laughs> to tell you what stock is. Right, we'll talk but, off camera. <laughs> um, uh, I would, don't know the price to book, but I think that some of the assets are being uh, that some of the assets are now worth probably 10 or 20 times what they're on the books for. Oh wow. So if you screen for price to book, it doesn't look good, mm-hmm. but you can, you can just ask what's, what would a private, um, buy or pay for this business, Mm -hmm. right? And no private buyer would pay book value in this case. Book value is not important. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you're buying a discount to um, what the market value really is, Mm -hmm. then then that's a good investment. And I think that's always the gap that matters most is what do you think a private owner would pay for this? Yeah. Um, And then buy at a discount. That's even like when I talk about U.S. Lime. Mm -hmm. If you could find what um, others in the industry are paying for similar uh, properties for similar deposits sure and you can buy a discount to that then do it mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. um you know and, and that's not necessarily a low price to book because that's on the books at whatever you know they haven't been doing a lot of permitting of of new um line production mm-hmm. so it's not necessarily like replacement cost doesn't come into it being a big thing there um you know so i think that price to book price to earnings those are things that uh, indexes and stuff care a lot about, but it's always what do you think a private owner would pay for it and then buy at a discount to that. Good. Well, I think that's a pretty good conclusion. We want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, be sure to check us out at focuscompounding.com, um, you know, where we write about investing ideas, where users write about investing ideas. The five most recent memos written by either Jeff, myself, or members, uh, one of them is Fairfax Financial Holdings, General Electric, J2 Global, US Lime, and Apple. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ideas that come through there. And uh, be sure to check us out and be sure to sign up also using the promo code podcast. And yes. what what does that do if they... It takes $10 off forever. Should so. we spell podcast or should we feel... It's a, all one word. That's <laughs> the only thing they need to know about it. Yeah, it's okay. one word. <laughs> we hope they could spell podcast. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in with us here today. Mr. Jeff, you have a great day and we'll see everybody in the next one.